I next met with Dr. John Leonard for a follicular slash indolent lymphoma CLL update, and he began by commenting on one of the most discussed papers of the ASH meeting, a phase three study comparing rituximab monotherapy to watch and wait in patients with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma. This is a very important concept or question that is, should we be watching and waiting in follicular lymphoma anymore in the age where we have rituximab-based therapy? And in particular, for some patients who you would generally think about watching and waiting, we could certainly consider giving them rituximab, a relatively less toxic treatment than a chemotherapy-based treatment. And so this is a study conducted largely in Britain where they took about 462 patients and randomized them These were generally low tumor burden follicular lymphoma patients who had received no previous treatment, low tumor burden by the GELF criteria, basically non-bulky disease, no major cytopenias, no organ obstruction, generally what we would consider a population where you could consider watching and waiting. And they randomly assigned them to either watch for waiting in a standard observation fashion versus four weekly doses of rituximab, versus four weekly doses of rituximab followed by maintenance every two months for two years, one dose every two months for two years. And the second, the arm B, the intermediate arm, which is rituximab without maintenance, basically was stopped in the middle of the study because with all the data coming out with rituximab maintenance, that became less relevant and of interest. So it basically turned into a study of watch and wait versus rituximab, four weekly doses, followed by one dose every two months for two years. And the primary endpoint of this was really the time to initiation of new therapy. And not surprisingly, I would say, it met that primary endpoint. It's not surprising that if you do nothing versus you do something, that the patients who you do something on are going to go longer before you have to do something else. And what they showed was that basically this group of patients, those that were watched and waited, the median time to initiation of new treatment was 33 months, so about two and a half years or so. This is actually similar to a previous study of chlorambucil versus watch and wait that the same group had done in the past that was published several years ago in The Lancet. And basically, the time to next therapy was prolonged in the patients who were receiving rituximab with maintenance. Interestingly, the next treatment in both arms was largely chemotherapy-based. And I think this is a little bit of an artificial issue because if you have a patient who you're watching, waiting, and you're thinking about rituximab as a single agent as the intervention that you would choose, you would think that if you're watching and waiting and then pulled the trigger on treatment, that single agent rituximab might be an appropriate thing to do. But in fact, that's not what they did at all in these patients. They largely got chemotherapy-based treatment. So I think at the end of the day, It's not a surprise that if you intervene versus don't intervene, a patient is going to go longer before you have to do the next step, the next treatment. At the end of the day, what really matters in this study is, I would say, number one, overall survival, which is obviously a long-term issue and certainly premature for this report. And number two, quality of life. Is the patient actually doing better or worse, or the same, if you're intervening with rituximab versus observing them. And obviously, you could create a hypothesis that it's better for the patient's quality of life to be treated. You could argue it's better to not be treated. That, I think, is the key issue. And those data are being included in this study, but weren't in all reported. 
So at the end of the day, for me personally, this hasn't really changed my approach to follicular lymphoma patients. I still continue to watch and wait. I think this gives us some interesting data on the single-agent rituximab results in this low tumor burden population. While that's not the majority of patients overall, certainly in the U.S., there is a substantial number of patients that get treated with single-agent rituximab. And I think these will be interesting data to follow up on on how these patients do and what happens after as they go on and move on to chemotherapy down the line. What have you seen in your own patients in this situation? And will this study affect the way you counsel them? Well, I think that this has gotten a lot of attention. Obviously, it was in the plenary session. A number of patients have asked about this and said, well, if I've been on watch and wait, should I stop watching and waiting now? And I don't think it's a reason to stop watching and waiting. I think one of the fascinating things is that the same group actually did the chlorambucil versus rituximab study. And if I showed you these curves versus the prior curves of chlorambucil versus rituximab, I don't know that you could tell the difference, frankly. And yet the conclusion of the chlorambucil versus watch and wait study in the past was to keep watching and waiting. And now because rituximab is relatively benign, the conclusion here is to go ahead and give rituximab because it's relatively benign. Whether or not that's appropriate or not, certainly we could debate. What about the Prima paper that was presented at ASH 1788? It's also been published. What's new here? Well, it's additional follow-up. This is the study done, again, as you allude to, the PRIMA study done largely in Europe. This was a very large study sponsored by the GILA group but involving others. Had over 1,200 patients with previously untreated follicular lymphoma. What it did was they were generally high tumor burden patients. It allowed them to be treated with rituximab plus chemotherapy. Three-quarters of those patients were treated with RCHOP, so it's largely an RCHOP-treated population. And it asked the question, if you're getting treatment with R-chemo, largely R-CHOP, and you go into remission, either a CR or PR, do you benefit from additional maintenance for rituximab? And so this randomized these patients to either observation or one dose of rituximab every two months for two years. And the bottom line of that study, this was presented, as you know, at the ASCO meeting, and it was updated at the ASH meeting now with a median of 36 months of follow-up. The three-year progression-free survival of the patients who were observed after our chemo, again, largely after our CHOP, was 60% at three years PFS versus 78% with those that got the maintenance for tuximab. So about an 18% improvement, or 18 out of 100 patients, you could say, benefiting by still being in remission three years out. So I think, you know, this is obviously a meaningful clinical difference. The fundamental difference, I think, is not hugely changed as far as the main conclusion from the two-year data that people may already be familiar with. The fact that it holds up at three years is obviously a good thing. And I think it provides further support for the concept of maintenance. I think, obviously, the key issue balancing this out is what's the toxicity of the maintenance regimen? What's the quality of life? There's really been little evidence that maintenance changes quality of life one way or another, although obviously that's a tricky issue. I think there is a little bit more infection and toxicity in the patients getting maintenance. I think that figures into the equation a little bit more. And with more follow-up, I think this is helpful to know about. 
the grade three or four adverse events were 17% in the observation arm versus 24% in the maintenance arm. So again, about a 7% difference in significant adverse events. And those were largely neutropenia, which is 1% versus 4% in the rituximab maintenance arm and infections 1% versus 4%. So you will see, again, three patients out of 100, an increase in grade three or four infections or cytopenias. Obviously, for those individual patients, that's an issue. But for the whole population, it's probably not a huge issue. And so I think it doesn't change things all that much, but I think the key issue in the long term will be survival and, you know, what is the significant toxicity that these patients experience with maintenance. Thus far, it seems to be relatively minor. So on sort of a similar level, at least in my fuzzy mind, is Abstract 594, more data from the so-called FIT study looking at ibrutumumab consolidation. I don't know whether people visualize this sort of as an alternative to rituximab maintenance, but in any event, can you talk about what was looked at and presented here? Sure. So this is, and the FIT study has been published, I believe it was in blood a couple of years ago, but I think this is important follow-up data. And on the surface, this didn't seem to be very important, but actually I happened to chair the session when this was presented, and I think it was very helpful to actually, there was a fair amount of data, even though this was kind of an update. So this looked at patients treated, these were basically follicular NHL patients receiving initial therapy, and then those that achieved a CR or PR were randomly assigned to either observation, or in this case, instead of maintenance rituximab, it was yttrium 90 abrutumumab tioxetan. And so the concept here is that once you're in remission after your chemotherapy, rather than giving you maintenance rituximab, do you benefit from kind of consolidation radioimmunotherapy? So this is an important study now with somewhere around six years of follow-up, five to six years of follow-up. And so, again, the longer-term data obviously is important and of interest. It took about 400 patients in this study. Now, the interesting difference in this patient population is that these patients largely got their induction chemotherapy without rituximab. So that's a big difference in that most of these patients did not get rituximab with their initial treatment, which is obviously not the standard today in practice. That being said, when you look at them after their induction treatment, which was, again, largely chemotherapy, about half of them were in CR, about half were in PR, and they went on to either be observed or consolidated with RIT. And at the end of the day now, with this more extensive follow-up, there was a 43% five-year progression-free survival in the control group with a median of 31 months. I think a better way of looking at this actually is the median progression-free survival in the RIT group was 49 months versus 14 months. That's probably the best way to think about it as you delve into these numbers. So about one-year PFS with observation and again, about four-year PFS with RIT consolidation. So clearly a meaningful difference, essentially four years versus one year. After one treatment, too. After one treatment, exactly. And so the obvious question that comes up is, well, what's the toxicity here? You know, we talked briefly about the maintenance rituximab and a minor increase in infections. When we talk about RIT, what we worry the most of is the secondary malignancy issue and merotoxicity. And I think the most important piece of information out of this was that there were six cases or 3% of MDS 3% of cases, patients had MDS in the 
consolidation with RIT arm versus one patient in the control arm. And so that's the cost. It's a 3% incidence of MDS with the benefit of the RIT. And I think intellectually, it's a great question to think about and debate. If you knew RIT consolidation was a great thing efficacy-wise, how great would it have to be that you would accept a couple percent risk of MDS? And I don't know the answer to that. And I think as we think about using it for our patients, that's the real fundamental question, particularly with the younger people. So is there a study or is there going to be a study or do we need a study looking at our chemo followed by either our maintenance or RAI? I think that's a great question. I think the challenges of radiomanotherapy moving forward have been difficult, as you know. The intergroup study in the U.S., we should have results hopefully within the next year, which is our CHOP without maintenance versus CHOP followed by I-131 tocitumumab. So again, it's the our chemo versus chemo followed by RIT. So it's not quite what you mentioned there. And I think that's going to be the issue. I think we really do need a study, as you describe. I think the problem of doing such a study, given the lack of uptake, really, of radium in a therapy, it would be challenging to do such a study and get momentum behind it. But I think it's a very important question for these patients. I'll editorialize by saying disappointing that we can't do this study, but anyhow, I guess... I agree. I agree 100%. All right. Abstract 857. This is a study from Bernard Cofier et al. looking at bortezomib, rituximab, and follicular lymphoma. So I think that one of the exciting things to me about the ASH meeting is that for several years, once we started having new biologic non-chemotherapeutic drugs beyond rituximab or new antibodies, the idea of these doublets, two non-chemotherapy drugs, i.e. rituximab plus X something else, versus rituximab alone has been a question. And whether it's the X is is bortezomib or something else or another antibody, kind of two non-chemotherapy drugs versus one has always been of interest. And I think the interest... the imids. Exactly. We have the imids as well. And so the concept of comparing rituximab plus new drug versus rituximab alone has been of interest. And I think noteworthy at this year's ASH, we had two of these abstracts presented, this one, and then I'll just parenthetically mention rituximab versus rituximab plus galiximab, the anti-CD80 antibody was also presented. So these were the first two doublet versus singlet with rituximab that we've seen. And so this, I think, was a very impressive study in that it was 670 patients with recurrent follicular lymphoma. So it has to be one of the biggest studies ever done in this patient population. It was an international study that randomly assigned patients with recurrent follicular lymphoma to either rituximab alone versus rituximab plus bortezomib. And as the audience knows, bortezomib has significant single-agent activity depending on the study from 15 to 30 to 40% in recurrent follicular lymphoma. So really the idea of combining it with rituximab was of interest. There were some phase two studies suggesting that this combination had up to a 50% or so response rate. And so this really, in a polar way, asked the question, is bortezomib rituximab better than rituximab alone? So 670 patients randomly assigned to two versus one drugs. And the bottom line, and I give the investigators a huge amount of credit for being able to get this study done, the bottom line of this was that, as you'd expect, by adding bortezomib, you had a bit more toxicity, particularly along the lines of neuropathy, fatigue, and mild cytopenias. And there was an efficacy benefit to the two-drug versus one-drug combination, the bortezomib-rituximab 
group had an overall response rate of 63% versus 49% with rituximab alone. The duration of response was slightly longer with the combination, but not dramatically longer with the combination. The median PFS was basically 11 months versus about 13 months. So basically a two-month or so time to progression benefit and a 10% improvement in overall response rate or so. So at the end of the day, I think this is a statistically positive trial in that there was a statistically significant benefit. The question for the practitioner is, you know, really is this a clinically significant benefit? Is a 10 to 15% improvement in response rate and a two-month improvement in PFS in recurrent follicular lymphoma enough to justify adding bortezomib? And I think that's a little bit of a tough call. I think that it's going to be challenging to look at these data as compelling to say when you're using single-agent rituximab in recurrent follicular lymphoma, you have to add in vortizumib because I think the magnitude of these benefits, though statistically significant, may be a little bit debatable. What about trials looking at vortezumib early on with our chemo? Well, there are a number of those. As you know, we've been interested in the rituximab CHOP plus bortezomib. Actually, we have a paper in press. It's actually online right now in JCO where we looked at bortezomib plus R-CHOP both in mantle cell lymphoma and in diffuse large cell lymphoma. We had about a two-year PFS in mantle cell lymphoma when we add bortezomib to R-CHOP. Hard to say that that's dramatically better than RCHOP alone, but I think it may be a little bit better. It's certainly debatable. I think where the interest is primarily is in a couple different scenarios. One is in large cell lymphoma, where, as the audience knows, the germinal center and non-germinal center subtypes of large cell lymphoma have been different in their prognosis. The non-germinal center subtype has been less favorable that's been associated with a less favorable outcome and with higher levels of NF-kappa-B-associated activation. And so the concept being that bortezomib, which may in part work via NF-kappa-B, could be particularly useful in that subset, the non-germinal center subset of large cell lymphoma, in overriding the NF-kappa-B activation. And our data that are coming out in JCO support that concept, don't prove it. There's actually a randomized trial of RCHOP alone versus RCHOP plus bortezomib in the non-germinal center subtype of large cell lymphoma. So that's one group. There are also several studies that are substituting bortezomib for vincristine that's being looked at in follicular lymphoma and in mantle cell lymphoma. And then additionally, there are studies that have combined bortezomib, rituximab with other chemotherapeutic regimens such as bendamustine, which are also very interesting as well. Again, would ultimately require randomized trials to demonstrate a clear advantage, but at least the initial data are quite encouraging. How about Abstract 856, another report from Dr. Rummel and the German group looking at bendamustine, rituximab, as the audience knows, bendamustine is a very active drug in follicular lymphoma, in other lymphomas such as mantle cell lymphoma, both in the relapsed and upfront setting, also CLL. And so there have been a variety of studies looking at it either alone or more commonly with rituximab. And in follicular lymphoma, I would say that because of the data showing that CHOP-R versus BR, that BR is perhaps even more effective than CHOP-R and better tolerated than CHOP-R, 
that the BR combination is getting more and more use. And so one regimen that people have historically used a fair amount, particularly in relapse follicular lymphoma, has been the fludarabine-rituximab combination, either up front, Myron Chutchman initially reported on that, or in the relapse setting. And so I think the practical question for the clinician is, now that we have bendamustine, and if you have a patient who's already had rituximab, already had alkylator regimens like RCHOP, you would have five or 10 years ago had FR as your option for those patients should you now use BR instead, given the efficacy. And, you know, looking at the data with BR, one would think that it could very well fill that role. Rummel and the German group in this abstract actually answered the question where they took patients with relapsed follicular and other indolent lymphomas as well as mantle cell lymphoma, about 219 patients, randomly assigned them to either benamustine rituximab or fludarabine rituximab. It's important to note this was three days of fludarabine rather than five days. Some people in this setting would use five days, so it was a little bit lighter dosing of fludarabine than some people would typically use. At the end of the day, though, the key issue they had about almost three years of follow-up the median progression-free survival was significantly longer with the bendamustine rituximab versus the fludarabine rituximab. This was 30 months versus 11 months, so more than double the PFS. The overall response rate was also higher, 83% versus 52%, and the toxicities were really quite similar, and one would argue not all that different from the clinical standpoint. So I think at the end of the day, this, I think, continues to push fludarabine lower down on the list for indolent lymphomas and mantle cell lymphoma. Really, patients, I think, are going to get alkylator-based regimens more commonly, whether it's CVP or CHOP-based treatment or bendamustine-based treatment because of fludarabine appearing to be inferior. Certainly in this study supports that concept. So it's been a year now since the data were presented. You mentioned comparing bendamustine and rituximab to RCHOP. We know from our patterns of care study, as you alluded to, there's been a huge increase in the use of BR outside of trials. What's been going on in terms of the cooperative groups and discussions about new trials? I know initially the issue was, well, is BR now going to be you know, integrated as sort of the control arm versus RCHOP? Are people going to be given choices? Where are we with that? Well, I think that's a great question. I would say that the cooperative groups obviously have different philosophies on this depending on the disease. Certainly in mantle cell lymphoma, I think it's becoming more clear-cut than in the group of patients, the elderly group of patients with mantle cell lymphoma where BR appears to be better than RCHOP and is better tolerated. The cooperative groups are looking at BR-based therapies and are in discussions around a BR-based protocol plus one or more new drugs in mantle cell lymphoma. I think in follicular lymphoma, it's a little bit more complicated, depends a little bit on the groups. You kind of have, and I think we're to some degree at a crossroads in follicular lymphoma in that, and I presented actually in one of the education sessions at ASH, the philosophy in indolent lymphoma of less is more versus more is more. In follicular lymphoma, you have that group of patients and the philosophy that you're going to do less and less treatment, rituximab alone, perhaps rituximab with some biologic treatments. On the other hand, 
the approach of we're going to treat people with chemo R plus R maintenance, maybe with other drugs on top of that. And certainly in the studies that are examining a chemotherapy-based approach, I think bendamustine rituximab is becoming the backbone for the cooperative group studies. I think the issue with the cooperative groups, like many of our clinical trials, it's a good problem to have is that there are so many active drugs in follicular lymphoma, which ones are most worthy of study? You know, do you integrate bortezomib? Do you integrate lenalidomide? Do you integrate some of the newer oral agents such as the PI3 kinase inhibitors, the BTK inhibitors? that are well tolerated. And I think that's the challenge is that we have lots of drugs and the timelines to sort these out are really long-term. But certainly it makes sense. And I think the groups are focusing a great deal on BR as a backbone in follicular lymphoma as well. It's really interesting to see how people respond to clinical research data. I've told Dr. Rommel, I don't know that you're aware of it, but that BR is kind of like something happened in breast cancer called TC. I don't know if you make rounds on the solid tumor service there, but, you know, docetaxel cyclophosphamide came out a few years ago, single study, not huge, but not that, they said it was better than, you know, doxorubicin containing regimen, nobody could believe it. But now, five years later, that's really used a lot more commonly. It's a very similar kind of story, but I don't know if it's going to sort of evolve the same way. Yeah. What about... Abstract 1395 and 1379, looking at lenalidomide in CLL. So lenalidomide is really an exciting drug in lymphoid malignancies. As the audience knows, while it's approved in myeloma and in subsets of MDS, it really is a drug that has been active in just about every form of lymphoma that it's been tested in as a single agent, somewhere in the range of 15 to 30 to 40 percent of the time, again, depending on whether you're talking about subsets of mantle cell, large cell, follicular lymphoma, and CLL. And I think one of the fascinating things about lenalidomide is the fact that it has so many potential mechanisms of action, whether it's activating the immune system, whether it's anti-angiogenic, whether it's otherwise affecting the tumor microenvironment or directly affecting the tumor cells. And it's an oral drug, obviously, and it's not chemotherapy. And so the idea of combining it or using it as a maintenance or consolidation is of interest because obviously in some ways it's convenient to have a patient on a maintenance or consolidation treatment after chemotherapy. And so it's really jumped into the niche as far as the clinical trials of can we use it as a substitute for chemotherapy, i.e. instead of chemotherapy plus rituximab, can we give lenalidomide rituximab or can we use it after chemo rituximab? as a consolidation or maintenance sort of treatment. And so one of these abstracts at ASH addressing these issues is by Farajoli and colleagues from MD Anderson, which basically took patients with recurrent CLL. And this group at MD Anderson was one of those who had established and evaluated lenalidomide as a single agent. This is looking at it in combination with rituximab in recurrent CLL, both relapsed and refractory patients. And this sort of combination has been looked at in follicular lymphoma up front and in relapse, in large cell lymphoma, in mantle cell lymphoma. And so this LR combination or R-squared rev-rituximab combination is one that people are seeing presented in a variety of different settings. And so this looked at about 60 patients or so in a phase two trial with recurrent CLL. And basically this group of patients all had prior rituximab. Most of them had had prior FCR, roughly 90% of them. So they, you know, had received previous treatment and previously relatively good, you know, FCR type treatment. 
So when they looked at treating these patients with a combination of lenalidomide rituximab, they had about a 64% overall response rate, including some CRs, and really at a median follow-up of just over a year, about 40% of patients had relapse, so the majority were still in remission, and the overall survival, obviously hard to assess fully with regard to one treatment, was about 90% or so. I think one of the interesting things is that the cytogenetic abnormalities were not a big factor in this in that patients could respond regardless of their kind of CLL fish profile. And so this is certainly encouraging data. The bottom line is that these patients largely responded to this treatment. I think for recurrent CLL patients, this is a reasonable option. It's certainly a reasonably high response rate, two-thirds of patients responding. And I think this provides further support for either considering this for relapse patients in certain situations, as well as to look at this sort of combination as part of initial therapy or as a consolidation slash maintenance sort of thing. So I think I think this is a very interesting abstract. Obviously, there are issues with lenalidomide with respect to tumor flare, which people should keep in mind. It seems to be a little more common in CLL. So if you are using lenalidomide in CLL, in particular, the tumor flare seems to be a little bit more common in that group as opposed to, say, follicular lymphoma, where it's less commonly observed. They reported 22 patients with tumor flare, and they actually reported one patient with grade 3 tumor lysis syndrome. Can you talk about those two entities and sort of the time course of when it develops and what happens and what you do about it? Well, I think people are familiar with tumor lysis in a variety of different scenarios. You know, this was one patient. I think the message is that CLL can surprise you with tumor lysis. You think of it as a slow-growing disease, and it's the antithesis of Burkitt's lymphoma, where we're always thinking about tumor lysis. And I think the message is with CLL patients, just about any drug can give you tumor lysis. Fludarabine can, rituximab can, even a drug that works in a relatively indolent or kind of immunomodulant fashion that you would think would take a while to work and give tumor lysis. So I think have a low threshold when you're starting CLL patients on any treatment of, you know, having them come back in in a day or two just to make sure they're not in tumor lysis and checking the labs makes sense. I think the tumor flare is a fascinating phenomenon. I think that at the end of the day, Clearly, this drug has immunologic effects, and the concept of recruitment or activation of immune cells in the lymph nodes to the point that patients are having lymph node swelling and pain and inflammation going on, in some cases, can be quite dramatic and you know almost look like the tumor is progressing is of a great deal of interest. What's typically done when you see that is giving the patient low-dose steroids, perhaps holding the lenalidomide for a brief period until things calm down and then restarting it at a lower dose and titrating it up. It's something that when it happens, usually happens sooner in starting the treatment, you know, within the first couple of weeks, perhaps even the first week. So I think be alert for that. And particularly in CLL patients, it's worth both keeping an eye out and letting the patient know that this might happen, which can obviously be a scary thing if they're getting pain in their lymph nodes and they're getting much more enlarged all of a sudden. And is there any correlation with response I don't think that that's been very clearly established. I think that it doesn't necessarily guarantee or preclude response. So I think it's a general observation that many of these patients will go on to respond and have shrinkage, but I don't know that it's a perfect correlation, say, as something like the rash with the EGFR inhibitors, for example. 
you mentioned lenalidomide and myeloma and there in the last year we've seen some really exciting data in terms of well here we're back again to maintenance and consolidation again but there was also a paper at ASH 1379 looking at lenalidomide consolidation after first-line chemoimmunotherapy for patients with untreated CLL. So this study comes out of the Mayo Clinic, Tate Shanafelt and Neil Kay, and what they did was basically ask the question, if we give patients chemoimmunotherapy with CLL, can they benefit from maintenance or consolidation? And I think to some degree, based on the time you're talking about, it's a little bit semantics. In this particular case, what they did, they've done a lot of work with a pentastatin cyclophosphamide rituximab or PCR regimen. And so you know, this in some ways is like FCR, but is a little bit different. And the concept is several studies have looked at following up a fludarabine-based regimen with alemtuzumab, and those have been challenging with regard to toxicity. In this case, the follow-up drug that's being used is lenalidomide for the reasons we just alluded to. And so this was a study of 45 patients, and what they did was after they received their six cycles of PCR therapy, they reassessed the patients, and then they went on to give them lenalidomide. And the concept here is obviously that these patients have minimal residual disease, and you can monitor for that. And the concept of can you eradicate that or at least suppress that from the standpoint of giving them lenalidomide to accomplish that goal. And at the end of the day, this is a, obviously a phase two study, so you can only draw so many conclusions as far as toxicity and efficacy. This was a manageable regimen. There's not a great deal of follow-up here, about a year and a half or so of follow-up. At this point, this compares a little bit better as far as efficacy and progression-free time compared to their historical data with PCR, but it needs more follow-up and would ultimately need a randomized trial. So I think this is a very exciting approach. I'll remind the audience that lenalidomide consolidation or maintenance is also being looked at in an ongoing CLGB study where patients are getting randomized to one of a couple of different regimens, including FCR or FR followed by lenalidomide. And so there are other randomized trials that are looking at the same issue, I think this report is encouraging that this is at least feasible to do and that these initial data are in the right direction, that this is manageable, which is in CLL patients, given all the difficulties with alemtuzumab consolidation and toxicity, I think it's reassuring to know that you can at least do this given the challenges in CLL with infections and cytopenias and such. Again, certainly there's an increasing experience in myeloma, which of course is a different disease, but at least people seem to be able to take it there. It's so hard, I think, for oncologists to sort of get a global sense of activity when they see trials where agents are given with other agents and trying to separate it out. Do you have any overall feeling in terms of global anti-tumor potential of lenalidomide in FL and CLL? And for that matter, same question we were talking before about bortezomib in FL. Well, with regard to lenalidomide, the data, and we actually are close to finishing up a CLGB study, which is in relapsed FL, randomly assigning patients to either lenalidomide alone or lenalidomide rituximab. So asking the question, does rituximab enhance the activity of lenalidomide? The data that have been published really suggests that in follicular lymphoma, the response rate in FL is roughly 25% or so. I think in large cell lymphoma, the numbers are similar. Interestingly, Myron Chutchman has reported that the germinal center patients 
with large cell lymphoma do less well with lenalidomide, and actually the non-germinal center large cell lymphoma patients do quite well with lenalidomide. So again, that's an interesting observation that is being looked at prospectively. In mantle cell lymphoma, it's a similar story. It's been 30 to 40%. In CLL, it's been also a similar story, about a 30 to 40% response rate. It's been a little challenged in that you have these tumor flares. And so when you're doing a study and lymph nodes get bigger on a study, one tends to think of that as progression when it's actually a tumor flare. And so how you handle that in the context of a clinical trial response and time to progression is a little bit challenging. But I think there's no question that this is an active drug. It's also got activity in T-cell lymphomas at a low level in some initial reports. And I think it's a fascinating drug in all of the different mechanisms of action that it has. And I think the concept of including it in upfront therapy is really exciting. The idea of, is lenalidomide rituximab so good that you can get rid of fludarabine-based chemotherapy or bendamustine-based chemotherapy or even CHOPR-based chemotherapy to avoid the toxicity and use kind of two biologics, I think will be very interesting to look at. And will it be good enough that the toxicity profile, even if it's not quite as good as a chemo-based regimen, is it good enough that because of the better tolerability that it's acceptable to get rid of the chemotherapy, I think will be interesting. So really interesting and really mysterious in a way about how it works, and I'm waiting for it to be tested in solid tumors, or maybe it has. Yeah, I don't know the status of solid tumors from the standpoint of lenalidomide. My guess is that there has been somewhat of a look in it, but I don't know the details there. Yeah, we'll have to see. How about abstract 2440, bendamustine versus chlorambucil and CLL? So this study was a randomized trial of bendamustine versus chlorambucil in patients getting initial therapy for CLL. And this was a study that helped to provide some of the support for the approval to treat CLL with bendamustine that clearly demonstrated a advantage to bendamustine versus chlorambucil in CLL patients with respect to efficacy. It was just over 300 patients. And the bottom line, efficacy-wise, is that the efficacy parameters were improved with bendamustine versus chlorambucil. Overall response rates were 68% versus 31%. Median progression-free survival was 21 months versus about 9 months. And so the bottom line, efficacy-wise, is that clearly there was an advantage by those parameters to bendamustine versus chlorambucil as initial treatment for CLL. I think, you know, one of the questions that obviously comes up in an incurable disease is quality of life, because particularly with older patients, if you're using a stronger, more effective, but perhaps more toxic in some ways regimen, how is it impacting quality of life? And the new part of this report was really that the quality of life was quite similar and really did not compromise quality of life by giving them IV chemotherapy that was associated with obviously some toxicities a little more significant than chlorambucil alone. So I think this provides additional suggestion that certainly in older patients where you might want to be minimalist, that you're not really hurting the patient's quality of life by giving a more effective treatment in bendamustine. Do you think that's the case based on your own clinical observations? 
Well, I think you know benamustine clearly is a very effective treatment regimen. I think that my experience with benamustine, as far as the patient's perceptions and experience, is quite heterogeneous and not entirely predictable. There are some patients, and sometimes it's the older patients that sail through it and have very little toxicity. Other people have more issues with cytopenias, and other people have issues with nausea. And I would encourage people that are using it. It is important when you're using benamustine to really give the patient adequate antiemetics because for certain patients it can be quite significant and perhaps even worse than many of the other regimens we use for lymphoma. So, you know, I think these data are what they are. They're certainly more than anecdotes and you can certainly argue that a more effective treatment, even if it has some more toxicity for some people, will control the disease better and that will also improve quality of life as well. So I think it is an interesting issue and I think these data are certainly helpful to keep in mind, particularly with respect to older patients. We've seen in our patterns of care study, how shall I put it, a great deal of heterogeneity in dose and schedule of bendamustine use. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that across the board, the most common dosage of bendamustine is the 90 milligrams per meter squared day one and two every four weeks. In resistant follicular lymphoma patients, the approval dose was actually 120 milligrams per meter squared. And in that, the study where it was most clearly looked at, it was on an every three-week schedule, which is quite challenging. It's an effective drug. And I think even if you need to, going down to 75 milligrams per meter squared or 70 can be quite effective as well for patients. But I think it's not very common in my experience or even in my own practice to use the 120 anymore. I think most patients were treating at 90 milligrams per meter squared. Actually, the heterogeneity I was referring to was in oncologists in practice. We've seen that investigators pretty much fall in on 90 day one and two every 28 days. Yeah. 